Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton. Sober since 2015. Osher Ginsberg. You may know him as Andrew G from Channel V or Australian Idol. I mean, he's a household name who told us who our first Australian Idol ever was. From his early career in Bris Vegas on a radio street team, he quickly caught the eye of Channel V's producing team and he landed the gig of a lifetime as the music channel's VJ. After jumping ship to network telly, Osher cemented himself as the face of Channel 10. He's a photography enthusiast, a doting new dad, and a podcast pro. Osher is a homegrown success story. However, off camera, there was another narrative playing out alongside the shine and the success. This is an Osher you've probably never heard before, and I've got to admit, I love how honest and real he is, and he also swears a lot. Osher has so much wisdom to share when it comes to sobriety. He really has walked the walk after hitting rock bottom. So enjoy Last Drinks with Osher. Ah, my dear friend Osher, can you tell me about your last drink? (laughs) Um, I can't tell you about my last drink because I don't remember having it because I'm pretty sure it happened during a blackout. Wow. Uh, but I can tell you that that night of drinking was a foolish error on my behalf when... See, I was living in California and I was I was over in New York for work and I, a mate who worked... He works in the finance industry, so therefore, for some reason, Gladwell's written about this... It's like they're all six foot four and beautiful, you know, <laughs> hair, you know, jawline that could cut cake and broad shoulders and, you know, pecs that look like dinner plates. It's like, come out, well, you know, I'll meet you here and we'll go. Anyway, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking, reckoning I'll go toe to toe with a guy who, you know, decides, makes decisions that can win or lose, you know, like $20 million before he's had his muffin for morning tea. I was like, yeah, I've been backstage with friends of Rome. I'll be fine. No, I wasn't fucking fine. <laughs> it was bad. It had no, it was no bigger or smaller, no more massive or, you know, more insane than any other night that I'd been drinking over the last, say, 20, it was 2010. So maybe over the last, say, five years, it was no bigger it was just another night of me, you know, being a boorish, belligerent drunk, you know, humiliating myself, humiliating the people that cared about me, you know, getting angry, having arguments in a blackout that I don't remember and, you know, just, you know, hurting people around me and hurting myself. Um, but I, this time, I'd woken up from a night like that hundreds of times. I got sober at 36 and I did the sums. I reckon I'd lost around 
400 to 450 days of my life from being just too fucked you know still vomiting vodka breath out of my nose at one one in the afternoon after you know calling people going oh no i'm real busy i'm not going to be able to make our meeting you know just blowing things off i I reckon i'd lost over a year and a half of my life and so it happened hundreds of times before but just this time i just couldn't do it one more time and that was it like i and that was march the 14th um 2010 very interestingly i was doing a photography project at the time this is bear in mind this is before smartphone cameras were really good and Mm. i was taking a self-portrait every day for a year using a dslr and off-camera flash and something so i actually documented um the last six months of my drinking and the first six months of my sobriety uh i didn't i didn't i didn't say it at the time but these photos are all still online and if you go and have a look you'll see i'm in new york and I, i look like a a a, a party balloon with eyeballs you're right i'm just so puffy from all the booze and just shit living mm. and my you know my i was getting I, I was getting sicker and sicker basically i was getting sick all the time and so unfit and so fucked um and then you see you know over the next coming months this kind of shine return to my life and my eyes and my body and my my cheeks reappear and my jawline shows up again and yeah yeah so leading up to that that moment in 2010 when you're like, okay, I'm definitely done. What type of a drinker would you describe yourself as? Did you, was it a coping mechanism? Was it, you know, did the fame not go well with your <laughs> mental health? Because, you know, we've seen you on TV for many, many years. And I know it's not the only thing that you do, but you're a household name because of those jobs that you've had. It was all of that and more. All right. It was, it honestly was, it was, I mean, I started drinking in my teens. I was drinking into a blackout from when I was like 14 or 15, but I learned how to drink in a cohort of people and we weren't any more or less wild than the other people around us at the time. But you know, this is Brisbane eighties drinking, all right. It's essentially country drinking. I learned how to drink in a cohort of people that was essentially, are we drinking? Great. I'll wear my gumboots because this doesn't stop until the floor's covered in spew and piss. All right, off we go. You know, if someone's vomiting through their nose, you know, doing the, the double dragon, we used to call it. Yeah, double dragon! Like, that was, like, that was fucking it, you know? Hilarious. And that's, that's what drinking meant. I didn't know the drinking could be anything else. So that's how it started. <laughs> Shit, right? Oh, yeah. You started at a 10. But what it was, Maz, is I'd always, you know, I've been a jumpy kid. I've de- dealt with anxiety and, you know, my I've been open about what, what's been going on in my brain. And alcohol was this magical thing that made this, um, you know, this kind of fear and a discomfort of being around people and, you know, being in new situations. It just all kind of go away. And I was like, oh, this is it. Ah, I can be with people I don't know yet. Ah, however, getting to that, ah, at first it was half a sip of beer that got me there. But alcohol is one of these drugs, and it is a drug. Alcohol is one of these drugs that the dosage needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger to achieve the same effect. And alcohol, initially it wasn't my problem. Alcohol was my solution. Alcohol was the thing that I used to get me to a place of feeling normal, feeling feeling accepted, feeling that I could be around people I didn't know, feeling that I could engage with people even that I did know. Um, Unfortunately for me, the dosage that I needed of this drug became so huge that 
uh, it became unsustainable and the damage that it was doing to my body and I could see how much it was going. I have a, I have a real problem with alcohol, the drug, um, in that in our community of Australia. And there's a line uh, that you hear <laughs> when I moved to Los Angeles in 2005. I lived there for 10 years. Um, you don't realise you've got a drinking problem until you leave Australia. Our cultural relationship with alcohol is completely fucking dysfunctional. And the amount of mm. trauma and pain and violence and death that this drug causes in our community, if it were discovered tomorrow, there's no way we would allow alcohol to be legal. It is a drug. Like, people go on and on about, we've got to have sniffer dogs at festivals because what if these kids overdose? You can walk into a fucking bottle shop and buy enough gin to kill you today. And perfectly legal. And no one gives a shit. And I'm not okay with that. All right? I'm not okay with that. this drug, this incredibly destructive drug to our community. Now, bear in mind, I'm someone who's on the wrong end of this drug. Not everyone reacts the way I do. But I reckon there's enough people in that community right. that react badly to alcohol that we should have a good fucking look at it. Because you look at it in ER, like pre-COVID, you look at it in an emergency room on a Saturday night, What's the common denominator in there, guys? All right, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not it's not fucking Panadol. <laughs> it's alcohol. Yeah, it's not it's not knitting needle injuries. No, nah, it? it's not. Oh no, we've just got banning avocados because people keep cutting their hands when they're trying to get the seed out. No, a lot of people listening to this, Osha, probably won't associate the clean cut, you know shiny, well-put-together guy that we saw on our TV screens on Channel V and, and Idol and, and, and so many other projects that you've done. That person that we saw, um, it doesn't correlate with the person that you've described. So I guess what have you learned? So I've since learned why uh, I have the career that I have. Uh, the, I have the career that I have because of the way that my brain works. It oscillates at a particular speed, which is, uh, I'm going to say, a higher rev limit than others in certain situations. <laughs> For example, live television, live radio, etc. And the, the yeah. way that I'm able to do the things that I do, which make the people who get paid way more money than me go, he's the guy that we're going to hire to do this show. Because there were plenty of other people, all right? And uh, plenty of other people uh, of my age, of my look, uh, that they could have hired, but they hired me because I was able to do this particular thing on live television that I, I just I could just do it better than other people, I guess. That's why they gave me the job. Mm. My brain did this particular thing and, and just goes so fucking fast. And uh, live television is incredibly unbelievably stimulating and incredibly fun and the wild thing is when i'm on a live camera looking down a barrel at two million people and later when i was in america at 10 million people that's absolute serenity because i'm in control i know what's going to happen next i get to say what happens next I'm speaking, everyone else is quiet. It's perfection. It's serenity. It's the look in Kelly Slater's eye when you ask him, hey, mate, how was that cut back at back door? He goes, and it lasted two seconds, not even half a second. He goes, yeah. yeah. He goes, yeah. Well, when you ask a golfer about the time that they hit par, they go, yeah. They remember that one swing, which is an eighth of a second. But it was that. It was this complete moment of serenity. And so that was perfect. But as, you know, 8.35, shows off air, I'm in the, I'm in the green room and... You know, I've got a That's bottle it. of wine in my hand. I've got a cup, but I'm not necessarily using the cup. 
Because <laughs> yeah. I had to decompress. I had no skills to decompress at that stage. I do now. I work very hard to make sure that I can emotionally regulate. But I was using alcohol too. Alcohol was my solution. Alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol was my solution. The that's a wrap in television is it's like this really because I was in a similar situation, Osha, yeah. with the MTV days and and that live high is it's so addictive. Yeah. And then that's a wrap. And then the you know the set comes down and the cameras go off and the lights go down and everyone just gets changed into their tracksuit pants and everyone's walking off and I'm still feeling like where's my world just gone? It just vanished. And so it's like you almost chase, yeah. well, for me, I was chasing that feeling when the cameras were off and, and I found, yeah. you know, comfort in alcohol absolutely yeah. to, to suppress all of that stuff. Because, again, but, similarly, I didn't have those coping skills that I do now no. and you do now to deal yeah. with that. Man, I wish someone had told me that when I got the job. <laughs> we Yeah, I know. Exa- and, and look, Maz, t- far younger than I am, but we're, we're talking about a time before the global financial crisis and people had budgets. It was a good time. <laughs> people had budgets, right? So I didn't know what it was to not drink. I couldn't imagine what it was to not drink because my personal identity had been coupled with beer for so long. I was terrified mm. to not be with alcohol and be in public. But I, I guess I wasn't, you know, I was in the public eye. And so a lot of the drinking was the decompression drinking. I never drank before I went on air because I was, mm. I, I liked the feeling of being so sharp and so fast and in this space of, you know, it was incredible. It's incredibly stimulating. And I didn't want anything to dull that. I didn't like when I, you know, the same was when I played in bands. I didn't really like drinking before I went on stage because I became sloppy and I didn't do a very good job. But when I was clean and clear on stage, I fucking loved being super precise and playing really tricky things. It felt really good. So a lot of the drinking was decompression drinking. But then again, you know, we got to a point where I think in 2006, I left Channel V and I created a five-day weekend. And um, so on <laughs> from Tuesday morning until Sunday 2 p.m., I didn't have anywhere to be or anything to do wow. so i would often spend three days and i was a very visible person you know i had very crazy blonde hair we we're on this massive show and people would Wonder and run across the street and try to tackle me because i don't know they don't know how to say hello and or mm-hmm. people grab my hair when i'm trying to do my groceries trying to pull it off my head thinking it was a wig and i was terrified of that so you know, I, I'd often leave the house with a... Oh, I wouldn't leave the house for days. I'd just drink red wine at home because if I'm drinking red wine, look, I'm a connoisseur. I'm not a, you know... <laughs> classy. A, a loose alcoholic. I'm just... A, I'm a con- No, I'm exploring the... I'm exploring the McLaren Vale this week. I'm just seeing... Like, <laughs> the differences between the grapes of the Alps that face... The, the hills that face the west and the upper, upper, you know, Adelaide Valleys. I'm just kind of interested to see how they compare against the lower Barossa. You know, um, it's got fruity over like fuck off i was just <laughs> drinking red wine like an idiot yeah. <laughs> on a white couch stupid idea and silly uh, combination silly Bad combi- combo <laughs> yeah lots of black t-shirts helped um <laughs> you know and it was just between me and the bottle shop guy no one needed to know yeah. no and the only yeah. people that would look at me funny were the people in the in the lift who you know i'm coming down with these giant bags of recycling bottles have a party last night did you mate yes <laughs> yes i did have a party last night so what's going through your mind in 2010 when you realise this has to stop, like this is not sustainable and it really, really has to stop? Were you fearful at that time of what your life looked like without alcohol? Well, that final night was no bigger or smaller than any other night, right? But it was just 
and I knew that I had to stop. I tried to stop. I tried to stop a bunch of times. And anyone who doesn't drink right now will probably tell you they tried to stop a few times by themselves and yeah. they just couldn't do it. Um, I just because it was just too scary to face life without alcohol. It was terrifying. I was like, I don't know how I'll deal with these uncomfortable feelings in my body that I'm drinking away. I don't know what to do because alcohol was the way that I was managing those uncomfortable feelings. Yeah. But that morning I woke up and. It was just getting progressively worse every night. It was just getting progressively worse. and every But every day was exactly the same. And every the outcomes just got worse and worse. And I could see it was getting worse, quantifiably worse. And so that day I woke up and not drinking was still terrifying. And trying to live life with a new identity of someone who didn't drink was still really, really, really frightening. But it was less frightening than drinking again. Because I didn't know what was going to happen. Well, I knew what was going to happen. I was going to die. You know, soon enough, I was going to be dead. So that became the less frightening option. And that was it. God, you just need a moment to even consider, like, the weight of that statement that you just you just know in your heart, like, if you didn't turn it around. And you, at the end of the day, you're the only person that can turn your story around. Yeah. As much as... You can blame other people and say, but it's yeah. Jimmy's fault. Whenever I'm out with Jimmy, he just buys me shots. And it's like you feel like other people force you to drink, but at some point it becomes lonely and yeah. you're the only person that can fix it. So yeah. staring down the barrel then of changing your behavior, who who did you tell? Because you were married at the time <laughs> in 2010. Let me just backtrack a little second there. Um you just made up a name. I just want to be clear that you're not referring to Jimmy James Matheson. Like, oh, that my is... God, I was not referring to James <laughs> Matheson at all. He may have been in the room, but it was never his fault, okay? No, I... I was not. That was a total... <laughs> if, anyone w- if anyone was the instigator, it was probably me in those situations, okay? Uh, so, yes, but the thing is, like, I had... Like anyone in this situation who's in a relationship, either a familial relationship or you promise your mum, you promise your brother, you promise your kids, you promise your husband, you promise your wife, oh, I can't ever do that again. Because there's a thing to say to yourself, oh, I'm never doing that again. When you're hugging the toilet at, you know, one thirty on a Saturday, you know, with, with, you know, vodka kebab spew coming out of your nose, I can't do this again, I can't do this again. When you tell the other person who loves you, um, I can't do this again. They, you know, you want to believe it. Yes, I told my ex-wife, you know, oh, I can't do that again. But I told her that so many times. So she had no reason to believe me. But I, I knew that I had, I, like, this was it. I had to do it. The thing is, though, you know, I, I came to sobriety six months after the end of Australian Idol, which was the end of the big, beautiful TV paychecks and, you know, uh, but sure enough, you know, I, I still had some, you know, income at the time. I was still doing a radio job and, and some other things. I picked up an American TV job, which was nice. And, you know, there was some other stuff that came along. But the decisions that I've been making and the ways that I've been living my life, all that ended up with, I did end up losing the lot. You know, uh, you know, we got a divorce, the house went away, the money went away, all that incredible idle money, those big fucking paychecks, or I don't know where it, most of it went, um, you know, <laughs> vanished into the, you know, thin air of, you know, stupid ideas and stupid investment ideas. And it all, it's all, it all went away. Gone, 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 gone. The only thing I have from that time is a really nice Hasselblad camera that I bought drunken on eBay one night. Um, 
that's it. <laughs> Everything else I had to rebuild from the age of about 39. <laughs> you very much um, hit rock bottom, I guess. And I know that there'll be people listening to this who are sober curious that aren't at a rock bottom. I didn't have to hit a rock bottom um, in order to decide to go sober. So is do you have any advice for someone who isn't at rock bottom but is certainly on their way, heading in that direction? Yeah, it comes from a, a, a philosopher by the name of Lao Tzu, um, be careful of the direction that you're heading because you may very well end up there. And that was the words that rung in my ears. Like, oh, mm. like I'm, uh, if you think, you know, an analogy would be a freeway. It's like, oh, oh, I've passed the last exit. Oh, the only place from here is the bridge that's out. You know, I can slow down, but I'll get there. Eventually I will fall and that's going to happen. Um, trick yourself i tried to try to trick myself into it because my identity was so coupled with alcohol and my identity was so coupled with drinking and my ability to feel comfortable in a situation was so coupled with drinking i, I it was too terrifying to consider that i could never drink again right so i wrote down in my little book journaling's been a big part of of how i've you know how i live my life uh even before i got sober and it still is 20 something years now i wrote down in my little book until i can have a healthy relationship with alcohol i'm not going to drink that's the, there's this massive pile of dishes right here. I can't face doing all of them. I'll tell you what, I'm not even going to fill the sink. I'm just going to put a bit of soap on the gushy sponge. I'm going to pick up this one plate and I'm going to wash one plate. Then I'm going to rinse it and put it on the rack. Then I'm standing there with a sponge and there's another plate. And you end up just reaching for the other plate and you end up doing the whole lot. But you trick yourself by going, I'm just washing one. Similarly, I'd... I, I just had to trick myself into going, until I can have a healthy relationship with this, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stay off it for a while. But it was about six weeks later I realized, oh, Ryan, right, I'm never going to do it again. Mm. But it, it hasn't been a decision to, at the time, and it still is, all I try to do is what my, I have someone that guides me along this path, right? And he said to me, mate, if you can get, all you got to do is get your head to the pillow tonight without drinking or using doing harm to yourself or another person. And if you fucked up, do your very best to make it better and try to be of help. Try to be of service to somebody else. If you can do those things, you've done it perfectly, tip top, you wake up tomorrow and you do it again. And that's it. And it's been that every day. Sometimes it's that every hour when it's really bad. And it has been really challenging in my life, particularly with, you know, I got very, very sick mentally, very unwell. Um, I ended up on antipsychotics and all kinds of things. I was very, very ill. It was five minutes at a time, but I can do five minutes. Okay, mm. so it's not you'll live, you'll go to bed never drinking again. You go to your deathbed never drinking again. That's too much to bear. It's like no, just go to bed tonight. Get to tonight without drinking or using or causing harm to another person. And if you make a mistake, try and make it better and be helpful. If you can do that, it's perfect. You've done it great. Great job. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I certainly, when I gave up drinking, I did not on day one go, I'm never, ever drinking again. My kind of self-experiment was I just want to spend a month of my life not drinking and see how that person is and and if I like her. How do you build a house? A brick at a time. You literally build a house yeah. a brick at a time. Unless you're using those fancy prefab walls and then it's all up. No, you literally build a house a brick at a time, all right? That's how true. do you 
Maz, you're in the fitness. Are you still in the fitness industry, Maz? I have a gym. I own a gym. Yes. So how do you how do you build a mad fucking rig? You don't do one session and then become no. ripped. You literally do it a rep at a time. You build those big muscles a rep, one rep at a time, one set mm. at a time, one session at a time. But you literally break it down and go, okay, I'm going up. I'm going to hold it, peak at the top, three-second negative. Okay, good. And then there's thousands and thousands of those to that photo of that person on the beach going, hey, happy summer. Right. You know? I think, too, when I was coming to sobriety, I didn't want to snooker myself by going, I'm never drinking again because then I know that self-sabotage, Maz, mm. would step in and screw it all up. Right. Um, because I was getting to know myself at that point in my life. And so I did... I was like, I'm going to do a month off alcohol and see how it goes. Yeah. And I'm going to do, so I'm going to do four weeks not drinking and see how I like being that Maz. And it turns out I really like her and it's been seven years. But I think to sort of break it down and not overwhelm myself with a never say never, because then also if I never, if I say I'm never drinking and then I do, I failed. And then there's this whole failure complex that I've got to go through yeah. and process. And so for me, it was like, I'm just not going to drink today. And if I can not drink today, I might like myself a little bit better tomorrow. And that's sort of how I started the journey mm -hmm. for sure. Maz, you really touched on something really important. If people come to not drinking through the pressure of another, like if they get, you know, sent, you've got to stop drinking or I'm out or like if people get sent to rehab without them actually wanting to be there, in my experience, from what I have seen, it never works. It never sticks. Yeah. You have to be face down in the blood and the spew, in the gutter, and look around for the thing that you tripped over, wanting to blame something, someone, anything, people, person, place, institution, law, you know, the government, whoever. You were looking around for the thing that made you do this thing, and you go, oh, it was my own foot. Oh, I'm here because of me. Fuck. Like, it has to come to that point. And if you yeah. don't, if, if the person that you love and are wishing could get sober hasn't got to that point, it's really hard waiting for them to get there. But in my experience, you have to kind of wait for that moment. So is the, you know, moment by moment, day by day philosophy something that you kind of carry on with today in your sobriety? To answer this question, I ended up having... Matthew Mitchum on my podcast, who's a gold medal Olympic diver. And I thought we were... He's you know, a sweetheart. He's incredible. I thought we were going to talk about Sugar. the discipline that it takes to become a diver and what it's like to go to the Olympics. and da, 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 da. We ended up having the most unbelievable conversation about sobriety. He started talking, and he's so wise. He started saying, look, you end up building a life in sobriety that you're not willing to risk. Because I am uncommon in that the way I describe it is that I have an allergy to alcohol, all right? One of our kids has a peanut allergy. Um, they're not anaphylactic, but they can get very, very sick. So we wouldn't give them even the slightest bit of peanut, all right? They're separate food surfaces and everything. And, it, like, you wouldn't give a kid, if your friend's kids are coming around, you wouldn't give them, you know, oh, I'll just brush the peanuts off the salad. You'll be sweet. No, no they could They could yeah. die. I relate my relationship with alcohol, I relate to it like an allergy. Even the smallest amount of that into my body changes what I feel is right and wrong, changes how much alcohol I should have and spins my moral compass like a like a roulette wheel. And 
in the early days, and sometimes still now, in the early days, uh, I, I would go to a friend's house who'd make their own kombucha because we live in California, and of course they brew their own fucking kombucha, and now we <laughs> brew our own kombucha. It's really great. Um, but they would put fruit in it, and it would ferment even just the tiniest bit. Even the tiniest sniff of that fermentation, I would sip this kombucha that they had lovingly created out of their pet jellyfish in the big jar, and I'd be like... <gasps> And my fingernails go into the table, you know, because, you know, even now, like, I, I once tried having a non-alcoholic beer, which are not non-alcoholic, they're 0.05, but there's enough of that chemical, there's enough of that drug, alcohol in there, that make me want to kick the front door out, run down the street, throw a post box through the front of the bottle shop and invade the beer room. And I have that within me. That's what I. That's this allergic reaction just starts in my body from even the smallest, smallest dosage of this of this drug. Um, if you relate to it like an allergy, like oh, this happens. Oh, fuck, it happens every time. Oh, oh, it's an allergy. You look at it kind of differently. Hearing it articulated like that, I mean, that's so helpful for some people. Just even in their own relationship with alcohol, to go, yeah. maybe I'm allergic to this thing because yeah. every time I do yeah. this. It really screws me yeah. over. Like yeah. it's never really a good result, and no. almost easier to accept that it's not for you, because yeah. if you have an allergy to something, why would you just keep doing it? You know what I mean? Like if you're no. at a party and you said to your friend, "Do you want to have a beer?" and they're like, "No, I'm actually allergic to alcohol." You go, "Oh God, fair enough." Whereas yeah. we have, you know, there was there's this problem that we have with people who aren't drinking if they're at the party. Yeah, I, I now use a line which I I stole. Uh, from a stand-up comedian, which I know is the worst thing to do, is to steal a line from a stand-up comedian. That's like <laughs> that's heresy. Okay, um, it was the day after I had been awarded the 2004 Clio Bachelor of the Year, and I went in. <laughs> I went in to do a round of breakfast radio. I was on air, I think, at ten past seven. All right, I, I think I'd got to bed around ninety-two minutes beforehand because it had been the big Whoa. after party. There'd been the big ceremony the night before, right? And I'm in a room, just reeking, just disgusting, right? And I'm I'm in the breakfast radio room with Dave Hughes, and um, I can't remember the team he was on at the time, but he was there. And he goes, "Hey," I, and he goes, "Oh, so fucking Mitchell, you're nice to see you." What do you mean, nice to see you? We've already met. It's like, are you kidding me? Here's you. I've never met you. He goes, "Mate, I gave you a logie, Dave Hughes." gave me, like I think two months before or three months before, gave me the Logie for Australian Idol best, you know, Idol-related TV show, gave it to me on stage, and I don't remember it happening. Standing on stage in front of thousands of people on live television. I was off my face on Percocet and Crown Lagers. Um, I, you know... Classic alcoholic, goes straight into, you know, attack is the best form of defence. What are you talking about, mate? You were shit-faced. And he goes, mate, I haven't had a drink since I was 18. Like, why not? Because <laughs> I'm a terrible alcoholic. And I now use that line. And people just go, oh, oh okay. A, a massive, a really important part of getting sober for me. Yeah, and I, yeah. I'm a firm believer in this uh, when it comes to um, gender equality, when it comes to, you know, relationships with our country and refugees, when it comes to, you know, you know, different sexualities in our community, when it comes to anything, you can't be what you can't see, all right? I had no idea what sobriety could look like. I did not know. To me, sobriety was sad people drinking bad coffee out of polystyrene cups with their heads bowed, sitting in a circle on folding chairs under a church, right? I have done that, and uh, I really enjoy those times. But <laughs> I didn't know that sobriety could be incredible, all right? 
I, in the about six months before I stopped drinking, I started to oscillate in the group of people. And one of these people was this photographer. And we were out one night at this party. And th- I'm, this party was bananas. I mean, Tommy fucking Hilfiger was there. And I'm terrified because I'm like, total imposter syndrome. I don't belong in this room. I'd been invited. And my name was on a piece of cardboard. Like, they... I belonged there, right? But I'm in this room. Like, I don't belong here. You don't know how much of a shithead I am. I shouldn't be here. And I'm just hammering myself trying to be okay with all these people. I know you, I know you, I know you. you." And I see this guy. He looked like Tom of Finland, right? There's gay people in my life. There's gay people in your life. And Tom of Finland is a character from the kind of 70s, 80s. It's an illustration. It's a cartoon uh, um, caricature of the, the perfect leather man. Like, huge jaw, massive forearms, fists like house bricks, chest like dinner plates, you know, big mistakes stash just beautiful and i'm like fuck you're real you're a real person and you're beautiful and you got sailor tattoos he had an anchor on his arm and he was hilarious and making people laugh and he was drinking water I'm like what is this and he was <laughs> sober and he was this guy's super talented like he's getting the cover of this magazine and the cover of that magazine and hearst magazines is all over him and they're flying him here and there on planes to shoot this stuff I'm like fuck you can have a career you can be incredibly charming and lovely and beautiful. Oh, God, I want that. So after this time in New York, which was a Saturday, I called him up on the Monday and said, hey, man, you don't drink. He goes, no. I said, you have help, don't you? I said, he says, yeah. I said, you go and hang out with that fellowship of people that help you stay sober. He says, yeah. Can you take me along? Sure. And so we went. You know, I heard my story come out of the mouth of a 24-year-old boy from Kansas. I grew up in Brisbane. And you're telling me that you feel exactly the same way when you're in a room full of people you don't know or, you know, you're in a job that you think is a bit above your station or your whatever and you use booze to get past that. Oh, man, I thought I was special. Ah, fuck. <laughs> I'm just a general run of them. Well, the good thing about finding out you're not special is that it's a, it's a common problem and there's a very clear path to a solution. And um, I've built a life in sobriety that I could never have imagined when I was drinking. How mm. big my life is, how enormous, and I drank everything away, all right? The decisions I made, not when I was drunk, but like the tr- who I was as a drinker led me to make financial and relationship decisions that ended up in just wreckage for everybody involved, and it was quite sad. The, who, What I have built since then, what I have rebuilt since then, is only possible because I don't drink. And the scale and the rapidity and how fast it's growing and where we're going is only possible because I don't drink. And I could never, ever, ever do this if I was drinking. When I started listening to other people that, the, you know, I call him my mentor, my doctors, my psychiatrist, my psychologist. When I started listening to those people and just shutting the fuck up and doing what they told me, that is how I managed to build the life that I have. It's breaking it down to that one meeting or that one step, that one day that you don't drink like that that's a pivotal moment when you decide that and then just to keep going and to not overwhelm yourself with all Mm. of these never ever agains and Mm. I even the label of sobriety is still a bit like it's still you know being sober seven years but it still has this weird feel in our society which is why we want to have these conversations and normalize being sober it's yeah I I have I have I have have a real problem with our our community and our relationship with alcohol and the damage that this particular drug does. I'm not saying 
everyone should stop drinking. I'm, I would just like us to have a, a really decent conversation about the impacts of this drug. Well, you, you're a standout human and, and this story is, um, it's a really powerful story and, and I so appreciate you just being so honest and sweary and vulnerable. It's, it's not me. It's, you know, it's everybody around me. You know, I just, mm. I just, you know, and I, I would just, I would say if people are listening to this, they're listening because either them or someone they love is in a, in a place that they're worried about. And mm. you look, you're not alone. And there is so much help and it's fucking free. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's free. And the helping another person is built into staying sober. I got taught, pick up the phone before you pick up a drink. I called, I think one day I called like 23 people in one day, 23 different people in one day. Um, mm. That And every single person that picked up the phone was like, yeah, man, I can stay on the phone for 10 minutes. No worries. And that helped me get through that day without drinking. Wow. And it, because they were like, oh, this is good because I've been in my own head dealing with my own shit. But if I can help you, that helps me. You're never a burden. You're never a burden. And there's heaps of help. And you're not alone. It's so good. Thank you so much. Thank you for also surprisingly being like the highest swearer I've had on the podcast. You can bleep me if you want. No, I don't, I don't mind if you I'd pull my swears out. No, it's perfect because you're just raw. It's so, it's a it's <laughs> such a great side of you to well, engage this is, with. You know, you know me. Like, do, uh, I am do I a, know you. When I'm on TV, those are jobs that I do. Okay, that's, yeah, and that's yeah, I that's think a, that yeah. that's the Osher that people see and. This is the Osha that we're engaging with and it's yeah. it's great. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.